Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Uh, his name's been called out a few times, and I'm glad we could finally connect because this is this is what the listeners want. So, today's guest is a York U Hall of Famer. While at York, he was a three-time OUA champion, two-time first-team All-Star. He started the Labatt Tour. He was the promoter at the Edmonton Three Star. He's been the president of the FIB Marketing Commission. He coached Crush, which, in my opinion, is one of the best clubs to ever exist, who won multiple provincial and national championships. He coached at the 2004 and 2016 Olympics. He was part of the coaching staff that won our first Youth World Championship with Schachter and May. He also coached Christina Valius May and Jamie Broder, who won Canada's first women's medal. He's the king of the beach. He's the big shooter. Welcome to the show, John May. John, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you having me on, Josh. This is this is going to be exciting, and I, I, I don't want to fast forward through too much, but... As a player, I guess, set the scene for us. What made you fall in love with volleyball? Because what you've accomplished and an influence in our sport is really significant. But I'm wondering, when you were growing up, what made volleyball like the sport for you? Well, I have to admit, um, I was introduced to the sport by, and this is the last time I'm going to drop this guy's name, but uh, I have to admit, Ed Drakich was my first partner in in beach and i was really introduced to the sport by his family down at the balmy beach club when i was probably oh in my early 20s um i'd just come back from brigham young university where i went for my first year of university and uh, i came back Uh, i was excited to play at york and i think I guess it was that summer or or maybe the summer before I went down, I, I uh, connected. You know, Ed and I had been involved with the Solars. I knew Christine very well. And uh, sure enough, I went down to the Bombay Beach Club one day and, and, you know, started playing beach volleyball there. And Ed asked me to go to a tournament in Rochester, New York. Uh, we So I said, sure, let's go play in a doubles tournament then. You know, we were pretty successful. I think I was 21 and Ed was 19 at the time. And it was kind of our first foyer into it. And uh, I loved it. It was amazing. Uh, It was such a a great compliment to the indoor game. So I have to give Ed credit for being my first doubles beach partner. And um, the Bombay Beach Club for being the, the birthplace of of the sport as far as I was concerned. Many would argue it's the birthplace of the sport in Canada, but uh, it certainly was the the venue where we earned our, our stripes, if you will. Now, it's interesting you bring up that you were at BYU. Was Carl McGowan coaching there? Before we take a dive into your beach career, I'm just curious about your indoor career. When you went there, who was coaching? Yeah, Carl McGowan was there. The year I went, uh, the gentleman that was coaching the team's name was Mike English. Carl was sort of the head of athletics there or played a major role, uh, not so much in the team, but in the university for sure. And Mike English was uh, coaching the the particular year I went. It was quite an experience, but uh, I I didn't go there with the anticipation that I'd necessarily be playing volleyball. I went to an open tryout, believe it or not, there were about 300 freshman guys there trying out for the team um so it was uh, you know going down to an american university and one that uh, certainly is well known for its athletic prowess um 
more so known for its religious background, but uh, certainly known for having produced some amazing athletes. So it was uh, it was an amazing experience to go there and be kind of dropped into that environment where I had to battle to make that team. I think if, if I remember, I was the only guy that made the varsity team out of those 300. And they, correct, they created a junior varsity team where there was about 20 guys on it. Uh, so there was a, a pretty decent program. And it was, it was an amazing experience. The competitive level there, um, it was just tremendous. Nice, nice. And, and back to the beach stuff. I'm glad you mentioned the Bombay Beach Club. When we had Marquise on the show, he mentioned his big break actually came because you were away at meetings. So with you being a top player at the Bombay Beach Club and in Canada, what sparked you to be the one who wanted to start the tour and really professionalize where beach volleyball was going to head? You know, I, I can't say what it was that motivated me. Um, I can remember, you know, Eli Drakich. Ed and Christina's father often, you know, organized tournaments, and I worked with him to put the tournaments together. And um, it just, it just became the thing I liked to do. And uh, so I was organizing the tournaments and playing in them, and 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 just loved the the opportunity to create the this competitive environment. And really, it started out as kind of a complement to the indoor program. You know, when you're not playing in the summer and when I first started to try to generate some money around it now this was probably 10 years after I'd been promoting events but you know in the in the mid to late 80s I decided that maybe that we could create a complement to what was the AVP tour I think Ed and I played in the first Chicago Open which was um, I think it was in 1982 we went there There were 96 teams in a double elimination, believe it or not, that's held over two days. So we went down there to play in that, and we ended up being the only team out of the five Californian teams that were entered into the tournament that, um, you know, basically uh, got into the money. The top five teams were paid out, you know, the four semifinalists and then the the two teams that finished fifth, and I remember to this day, Andy Fishburne and Dane Selznick finished fifth, as did Ed and I, and that was 1982, the first AVP event we played in. Probably the first Canadians to play in an AVP event, quite honestly, then, and I remember coming back to the the Bombay Beach Club after that experience, and one of the things we brought back, and this is so uh, strange for me to think about it now, but you know when you, you toss the ball up to yourself and you spike it at your partner, your partner digs it, then you set them and they hit it. Well, that was never done before. Ed and I saw that, that that's what the guys from California did, you know, when they were warming up hitting. Rather than you just toss it to the guy at the net and he'd set you and you'd hit. No, no, you add that, you know, extra dimension where the, the guy who was going to set takes a swing at the, the hitter, he digs it, set. And, so that... I don't even know what that's called, but I remember Ed and I bringing that back and thinking, wow, that is such an uh, advancement in, in our development. <laughs> um, it's, it's so bizarre. And, and Josh, I mentioned to you earlier, I do have a story out of that tournament that I've got to share, and I will do so at the end. Uh, One thing I wanted to check with you when with speaking to Marquise and doing some research for the show, 
when you built the professional tour in Ontario and eventually Canada, one thing that he mentioned was you weren't allowed to play, that it was viewed as a conflict of interest. So you were really like either in your peak or heading into the peak of your playing career. And now you're being told you couldn't play. So how did you come to terms with that or make the decision that, you know what, for everybody's betterment, I'm going to step aside and be the promoter and really kind of selflessly step aside because you were probably building the tour in mind for you to obviously perform and do well as one of the top players. Right. So what went into that decision when you found out you, you weren't allowed to play on the own, your own tour that you were developing? Yeah. You know what? It, 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 it sounds that it would be a big, you know, selfless act, but I, I I'm not that uh, selfless. You know, I, I, I was motivated by that time in my career. I guess I was 28. I did want to, you know, now that, now that you remind me, it, one of my motivations was certainly to create a tour where athletes that played indoor could make, it could be their summer job and uh, that's how they could make their money. So one of my motivations was to certainly replicate the AVP tour and have prize money and professionalize the sport in Canada. But yeah, and I, I did want to be a professional athlete per se. And I still take pride in saying to, uh, to people, although it was a very minor that I did play professional beach volleyball. It just, it was an accomplishment that I wanted to create certainly for myself, but yeah, for others. And I think, you know, when Labatt decided to put significant money into it, they didn't want to, you know, have me in a conflict of interest position. So they said, you know, you can make a choice. You can either play and we'll find somebody else to, to run it. And, or you can, um, you know, be the promoter. And we strongly advise you be the promoter just because I don't think they had anybody <laughs> ready to take over the organization. So at the time, I don't even think it was a, a big decision. It was disappointing that I couldn't play. But I do remember, um, I can't remember what year it was. It might have been 1989 or 1990 when uh, Labatt said we, we had this final event. It was called our International Open. And they said, you could play in this one, John, because it's the final event. And I can remember how excited I was. And everybody was already paired off. So I ended up partnering with this American guy because it was an international open. And um, I think at the time, Heath was playing with uh, Paul Cox. And uh, Child was playing with, I think, either Frank Blase. Yeah, I think that's who, who John was playing with. Garth was playing with Brian Gatsky. You know, so most of the, the top guys had, had paired off. And, you know, I so I picked this American guy. And I think we ended up playing, ended up being fifth or, you know, couldn't beat the top teams. But it was such a thrill to be able to play in that last event. You know, when you make a decision to, you know, stop playing a sport, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was a, a difficult time. It was, a, it was a sad time because I, but I always thought I'd, you know, come back. I didn't think it was a forever type thing, but my aspirations for creating a pro tour really were, you know, offset the, the disappointment of playing. Good to hear about the beginnings. Like you mentioned, just supporting indoor players and giving them almost like a, a summer job and a chance to be a professional athlete. But 
when did you realize the ripple effect of what the pro tour was happening with the world scale? Because my understanding, um, when we again when we had Mark on the show, his first international event, him and Mike Chalupka took a ninth, and they'll credit a lot of that that they were playing at such a high level back home. And then obviously with John and Mark in '96, again Mark would credit having a strong domestic tour and all the teams who did well in '96. He said had a tour back home, right? So, at what point did it kind of shift that you knew that this was going to affect Canada internationally? Well. Whether it's international or domestic or whenever you're competing, you're climbing a ladder, right? You're trying to get to the top. And, you know, each rung is sort of, you know, you step up a rung of the ladder and you feel, okay, now I'm there. Now what's the next step and what's the next step? So I often used to joke, you know, when I was carrying my ego on my shoulder, I joke with any player, you know, because... Back in the in the early '80s and late '70s, like I could play with anybody and beat any other two pair, like the best pair. It was it was kind of that, just because nobody was just doing it that much. I did have a longtime partner in Andy Cole, but you know, I, I kind of uh, positioned myself as the best guy, and um, you know, some would joke that the king of the beach was self-appointed, but not not really. It, it kind of it was evolved. I was I was a good player. And when I talk about climbing this ladder, when athletes are competing and you start to beat those teams that you never expected to beat, then you take that step up a ladder and you rarely come back. Like once you've come past that, once you've beaten somebody and you know you can beat them, that fuels your growth. And, you know, like I said, when Ed and I went down to that first tournament in Chicago in 1982, we beat everybody because we kind of thought we could, but we didn't beat the Californians because we kind of thought and knew we couldn't. But truthfully, our level was the same. So I think when we first started making headway international was we were establishing that belief. We were establishing, hey, we're professionals in Canada. We have a tour. We compete every weekend. Um, you know, we're in a sense, that's our training. We're developing and we're starting to establish ourselves as great in the sport. And, um, you know, there was lots of guys that like Chalupka and Heath and others that went on to the, uh, I can remember Andy Cole and Jim Cook won a Norseka event. And uh, we started to beat, you know, teams, the U.S. teams. And, you know, whenever anybody would beat me, I can remember the time when I lost to Child uh, for the first time. And uh, Blasey, I knew that they became the next guys. And it was, you know, that that's the evolution. And as soon as you start to beat teams internationally, and then your peers start to see that, you can beat them so we can beat them. It just snowballs. And, and you, you go up those runs of the ladder. And I have to say, um, without giving too much kudos to my wife and uh, Jamie Broder, is that Christina and Jamie were, you know, battling to establish themselves. They, when I started coaching them, they, they really didn't believe that they could be in the top in the world. But they were hoping for that. Right, because everybody was hoping. But when they trained and they developed that belief in that first Olympic qualifier for Rio in China, when they beat 
you know, they started to beat teams. They got into the semi. They beat Kerry in April. And then they went on to play Germany. Uh, I think it was uh, Labor or Sude. Yeah. And they beat them in the final. And it was like, what? They won? They, 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 they were now at that level? And as much as they battled to stay at that level, it really had an impact on the other teams. Like, think about it. All those other female athletes, Sarah is one who full of confidence, but could she make it on the beach? Well, hey, if Christina and Jamie can do it, yes, me and Heather can do it. So it was very short after that. I think they finished fifth in that tournament. So did um, Melissa and Taylor were, were in the mix. They had won the Canadian championships the last few times. But here we had a Canadian team now that has broken the ceiling, climbed up that ladder. And I think it was just a message to everybody else. It's like saying, hey, yeah, we're there. Our women's program is there. Child and Heath did the same thing. You know, when they started knocking off the top teams, when they beat Sinjin, you know, that was a big thing. When they bring, beat Franco Roberto, who were the world champions from Brazil, when they beat them, it was like a, a, a shot of confidence in the arm. Did they, was their performances on a regular basis that much better? No, but at clutch times, they developed a totally different mentality going into these competitions. And, and then you're in it to win it. You're not in it to be participating. You're there to win. Like you're, you're, and you've established yourself and you've established that belief, which I think enabled us to start to build the credibility. And then, you know, from there, the rest is maintained. You know, how do you maintain that? How do you keep, how do you keep the, the credibility how do you break through what's the next level like how do you win the gold medal in the olympics and i think we're close we're really close we're the current world champions you know and and i've been blessed to be involved with a lot of firsts you know the, there's been a lot of first things happen in the sport you know certainly uh christina and jamie were one but when Garrett and Sam won that junior world championship, it was like, wow, we're, you know, another first. It was like, yeah, Canada is capable of being the best in the world. And we, we've, in beach volleyball, we've continued to carry that. Child and Heath were the first that sort of forged the path. Yeah, to, to focus on John and Mark first. That kind of sparked what many feel was the peak of beach volleyball, right? Because it was after 96 that the Labatt Tour went national. It was on TV. Uh, lots of sponsors involved. Like, was Labatt paying attention to 96 or was it John and Mark's popularity that all of a sudden there was a fan base there and that's what got the attention for the sponsors? Like, which one happened first in your mind? Well, we had a relationship with Labatt uh, that goes way back to 1990. So we were, you know, we had them. They liked the sport of volleyball. I was selling hard against what was a more recreational tour that Molson had committed to doing. Uh, there was another promoter, Lori Locke, who was in the beach volleyball game, but more on a, at that time, more as a social sort of environment where beer drinking and, you know, and, and obviously I was trying to build professionalism in the sport. Um, not that there wasn't a fair bit of partying going on. Certainly our focus was to create you know, the highest level competition. And so the bat 
Labatt had some experience with us way before 96, but then when, you know, we did get a bronze medal in the first introduction Olympics and the sport, you know, was introduced to the world and our contacts at Labatt were still there, you know, we had a discussion. We thought, hey, maybe this is the time to parlay that. So in 1997, we did a, a Canada versus the world type of event where it was primarily a domestic tour and we had six events and we invited each time we'd invite one of the top teams from the world tour from a different country. I think the first one was Sinjin and Carl. They came to Toronto. Franco and Roberto came to, uh, where was that? I think it was in, uh, it's a beach near Brock University there, St. Catharines. There's a beach out there. Anyway, we, we brought the Australians, we brought the, brought the Norwegians. You know, we ended up bringing six different countries, and that's how we positioned it in 1997. And John and Mark ended up in the finals every time against this team uh, that we invited because they were at that level. And it, and it made for great, great TV. Uh, and it made for a great competition and a great story. And then right away after 97, you know, we said, hey, let's take the next step and, and uh, you know, bring the world tour to Toronto. That's, that's when it first started in 1998. Now, in your experience, like my experience now, whenever players, the, the finances come up, the, the service level answer and the easy answer that always comes up is, oh, we just need more sponsors. But with your experience as a guy who actually went out and got sponsors and built this tour, like if somebody were to ask Passing Dines for $100,000 to start a pro tour, well, first of all, we don't have it. And second of all, what's my return on investment? So what did the sponsors want in return for giving this money? Because I think people from the outside just think it's too easy of an answer to say, oh, just get a sponsor. But on the flip side, what does the sponsor want for that money or what do they get for being involved in our sport that you were so good at building and selling to them? Well, the sponsorship game has changed a lot in, you know, since I was since I started back 35 years ago. So it's, um, it's evolved Josh to a place where it's a very sophisticated investment now that, that brands are making, you know, when, when we back in 98, we'll say, or 97, when Labatt made a million dollar investment into the sport, their return on investment was really at that point, brand association, like equity association with a cool lifestyle sport. Whereas, you know, the evolution of media with new media now, uh, social media inter interacting, like social media is basically the foundation of that now is everyone's experiences, not just events, but everything anybody was doing on every any given day. So you know, corporations have to consider how they integrate into that media and therefore, you know, sponsorships and, you know, corporate partnerships and events and sports has, has become, well, it became incredibly competitive over the years, but that's not the only challenge is that it became so sophisticated that it's really the big players now that control all the dollars. It's hard for a smaller player to get the attention of a big brand because they're so committed to those other properties that are matured and you know just driving the numbers and driving the uh, impressions and really can 
connecting with the consumer on a much broader base level. So, you know, I think we did a good job for sure. I think back in 1998, I think we raised $3 million that year in corporate partnerships. And we continued to do that 98, 99, and 2000. The problem was we were spending three and a half million each year, you know, to make the tour run and to build it and grow it because you can't go back, right? You need to keep moving forward and build and invest. Um, and it just got to a point where the economics didn't work. And then, you know, we were, we were hot after the Olympics, but it didn't, get the traction same as the indoor property really it's it's really hot during the olympic periods but it it loses its momentum when it doesn't get that much attention you know and it and it and it slowly um over the course of each you know quad it falls off the radar and beach volleyball tends to be oh yeah that's that's what you do at a vacation spot or that's what i do recreationally it doesn't it can't maintain its positioning as this elite professional sport not to say that we can't do it but it's it's a lot of work and where do you stand as somebody who went through it as a promoter and started the tour, but also as a coach and with Jamie and Christina doing well on the world tour and even the Norseka tour, where do you stand on the thoughts that you need a domestic tour to do internationally? Because there is the, the opposite argument that says Canada is doing very well right now and we don't have a domestic tour, so it's not necessary. But in my opinion, I think it'd be nice for our younger players to go deeper into tournaments, maybe have a chance to get local sponsors. Like when we had Mike Sleen on the show, he talked about the ripple effect of the Pro Tour allowed him, who was Canada, three, four, five some years, but he was still getting sponsors because of the Pro Tour and things like that, right? So for you and your experience in volleyball, does Canada need a domestic tour to be a threat internationally, or can we stay the course that we are now and, and still be competitive without it? I think that that ship of the need for a domestic tour has uh, sailed. And, you know, because none of the domestic tours have really established themselves as anything. Like the AVP is doing okay now, and I think they've developed a fairly integrated strategy with the FIVB. So that's, that's helping, but I don't, you know, and it'll continue to, if that continues, but it's, you know, it's a challenge domestically to build it. It's a challenge internationally to build the world tour. But what's happened is the the world tour now has structured themselves such that, you know, it, it makes more sense if you're going to do events to do, you know, five stars. And then you have that international flair to your event. And, you know, like we did that three star in Edmonton. Now, I can't say that I was... You know, I became the executor of that event. It wasn't my my um, creation, in a sense. Um, you know, Volleyball Canada had been working with the city of Edmonton and the FIVB for quite some time, trying to get an event. And uh, their problem was they couldn't get a promoter, couldn't get somebody to really take the risk. So, you know, I got a phone call, and at the time. You know, the timing was right for me to, to take the risk and, and make the investment. And I'm, I'm glad I did because it worked out well. It was a great uh, welcome home for uh, Mel and Sarah. But as far as, you know, to get back to your specific question, does Canada need a domestic tour to remain competitive on the world tour? No, I don't think so. I think uh, if we're going to continue to grow the sport, we have to have ways for our youth to develop and and grow but uh, i don't think it's an absolute necessity for 
you know, there to be a high level domestic tour in Canada in order to, you know, create uh, the foundation for international success. I think that's, I think we already know how great we can be. You know, Sarah never played on a domestic tour. Mel never played on a domestic tour. You know, a lot of the great athletes now never experienced a domestic tour. They, they learned and developed their skills outside of that. It's just whatever we, whatever we need to do to maintain our belief that we can be there, we're going to get the athletes that can be uh, competitive. Nice, nice. And to shift to your, to your coaching career, so obviously you work with Jamie and Christina, you work with Mark and John, you work with Crush, and anyone who's been around you coaching, like the, the same words seem to cop up, uh, come up Excuse me, with confidence, the will to win, belief, clutch. Does it matter to you if you're coaching a 14-year-old team or a team trying to go to the Olympics? Like these are the pillars that if you're going to be coached by John May, these are the things that you come back to, that it's it's not always technical, tactical, that you're a big guy on, on treating confidence like it's a skill and that's something you focus on and try to build? Yeah, like 100%. Uh, no, and it doesn't matter. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, misunderstanding is a word or or... Uh, difficulty in in making commitments to winning um, because it's too aggressive or puts too much pressure on people or or whatever. I, you know, I look at it. I look at it differently. I, I, I look at it that um, you know, I, I truly look at striving for success more so as a a value proposition. Like I think it. I think we're given this life. We're we're blessed with life, and I think it's almost a. It should be a commandment if if there were such that you should, you know, do your best. And if you're playing sport, well, the reason you play sport, other than the health, you know, the pure health benefits of exercise, and you know fun to play and, and all that that's all incorporated into winning like it, it's part and parcel of winning that's why there's scores i know there's some strategies now to make a decision to not keep score because you know that turns people off well no that's what turns people on you're keeping score <laughs> you know it's it's your own personal measurement and it develops confidence to be able to understand losing. Like, of course you're going to lose if you're keeping score. You're not going to win all the time. The, the strategy is to win at the right times. And the strategy is to, you know, learn from your your losses. You know, there's, there's the confidence is fragile, right? All of us. You know, it's not a, it's not a consistent, you just have to keep, uh, reminding yourself that you know you're you're great and and find your greatness and, and strive for it. Not be afraid to make commitments like yes, I'm going to win. Uh, because if if you're not going to win, then why are you why are you keeping score? Why are you why are you doing? And um, I think it's a I think it, it's a, it's a it's a a given benefit to what we have it's that it's that simple nothing to be afraid of nothing to be afraid of 
So a lot of people are afraid of it. Uh, I'm not. Now it might be revisionist history at this point with how successful Crush was, but in speaking to like Garrett and Michael Denton, the first tournament those guys won was provincial, so they went through a whole season of of being competitive but not getting the job done right. So how would you? explain to a coach or a player that you navigated that situation because I think it's easy to have confidence when you're doing well like you said but here's a moment where you're building this team and you're you know treating confidence like a skill and you're training it but they're not getting the result at the end of the day so how did you navigate that situation where it's going to pay off it's going to pay off like that faith-based or that building confidence yeah. when they didn't have the medals well you, you, everybody writes their own story right like we all um, we're, we're, we're all authors and we're all directors of our own movies, our, our life movies, right? So you should be building your story to have, you know, multiple, you know, endings. You got to be prepared to, to, you know, you're, you're the author, you're writing it, you're directing it, you're living it. And, you know, so I guess you're referring to the, the 14U thing that Garrett, the, the, the first provincial championships that Crush ever won. There was a team out of London that was just, you know, physically way, way, you know, like it was like boys against men in a sense. They were all six foot two and, and they won, I think they won every tournament. And then there was everybody else. So we established ourselves that, you know, we're going to be the best for sure of everybody else. And we're going to be ready when the opportunity comes to beat them. And that was the story. And, and we stuck to the story. Like we were undying in building the belief in the story. And therefore it was contagious. The parents, the kids, uh, everybody associated with that, team had to start to listen and believe the story and that was important because you know if the parents aren't part of that story and their influence on their kid and so on and so forth like it was it's 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 a it's an environment that you create that everybody's got to get on board with because that's it. And, and you're only as good as, as those doubters, right? So you can't have people stealing your dream and you can't have people being, you know, uh, not believing or not supporting it. So you, you have to encourage the belief. You have to cultivate it. Like every day, every day you're with these kids, you know, and, and every day when you're not with these kids, they have to, you know, have some, some uh, established belief system. You know, we created, uh, and by accident, I created these four pillars of crush, right? Two that were technical and two that were what I would consider mental, right? And the two technical ones in the sport, everybody would say the two most important skills are probably serving and passing. You know, your show is called Passing Dimes. You've got to pass and you've got to serve. So if you can serve and you can pass, and you're the best at those two things, you're going to be the best. That's a given. So those two pillars, every kid that ever played a crush would know serving and passing were the key, and the other two are your ability to focus and then your 
and, and awareness. Those are the four pillars for Crush. Now, they're out there now. It's public. But those four were the pillars. And every kid that came to Crush knew the pillars. You know, serving and passing, focus awareness. Now, everybody in volleyball knows serving and passing. And everybody in volleyball has heard the words focus and awareness. But focus and awareness are actually opposites. Can you focus on something and then be completely aware of everything else? Well, that's a challenging skill, which when you start to be able to master that, you can zone in, but then you can be aware of what's going on around you. You can be aware of your opponents. You can be aware of your teammates. You can be aware of things. So they were, they were sort of, they were pillars for sure, but they were, they were words that helped us create anchors for that belief in the winning mentality that was going to happen. So we had told the story about beating that team in the final of the provincials. I couldn't tell you, maybe a hundred times. And, you know, Aaron Cadu, who worked with me and great friend and, and great partner in our growth and all those things. You know, I can remember today like it was yesterday when we won that and we looked at each other and it was like, it, it was that profound, Josh, that it just came true. And I've seen that repeated many times. Like I told Garrett he was going to be the best in the world from the time he could hear, I think. So when's that? And, you know, when he won the world championships with Sam, it was, it was surreal, but... It was expected, certainly by him. Um, so I think that establishing belief with Crush, I can't say every single individual had that mentality of belief in, in what Crush was capable of, but the majority of the guys that came through that, and then it attracted those guys that were super talented, but maybe didn't have that, right? And then they started to just want to be part of it. Lucas Coleman, as an example. Uh, Steve Marr, you know, came to Crush because he wanted that winning mentality. Now, of course, he didn't want to tap in so much to the environment as he did want to play with, at that time, what he perceived as his friends and, and the best players. But it was an evolution of the belief that, that was attracting these people that wanted a, a piece of that. And... You know, uh, I'll somewhat say it was an accident, you know, what Crush was. But, you know, Crush was just that. It was a disciplined commitment to winning. And it was, you know, we were uh, unapologetic about it. And, you know, it was... It was um, it was a philosophy and, and it was an environment that was created that established a belief. And then that, you know, was multiplied by attracting all these great players. Like Garrett's age group, the 92s, if you will, the 1992 guys were a bunch of guys from Birch Mountain High School where Garrett went. And, and you know, they, they started out at Birchcliff, the school, and so they were... They were, you know, they had a, a different talent pool, still a lot of great people, 
and and great families. I can remember the families being completely on board with this thing. So, you know, Crush, yeah, it was it was spectacular. I'm not, you know, I've, I've rambled a bit here, but I can't. I'm not sure what you uh, what your specific question was uh, about Crush, but I, you know, when I think about it, it was a you know a tremendous experience certainly for me and our family but uh you know a lot of people were touched by that and a lot of great you know athletes volleyball athletes came through there and how are you linking this to training again to to name drop marquise when he came on the show he felt he was really good at applying an action to this belief whether it was the the ability to get up in the morning and train or the secret workouts, or even when he's doing, you know, his weightlifting, he was going to be clutch at weightlifting. He was going to attach that to these moments, right? So we've already talked about the confirmation moments, whether it be winning a tournament or beating a certain team, but what are you doing in training to build to those moments? So when the opportunity's there, you can take advantage and be, you know, confident, you can be clutch and you can have belief that you're going to get it done, right? Yeah, I think when you're applying that to training, I, I, I think it's, you know, training is, is, is working, right? Like it's, it's, and, and I try to create, um, an environment that, you know, establishes the challenge of striving to win, I guess, um, the pressure that comes with it. You know, Mark, Mark, he's, he's a unique individual. You know, he, he's been inspired by, you know, his dad, he grew up, you know, knowing that, um, you know, his dad was an Olympian, you know, uh, and, and a driven worker, uh, as far as athletics go. So Mark had that foundational, I guess, uh, influence. And I can't, you know, take much credit for child peace, to be honest with you, other than I did create that domestic tour that they played on and that I did play against them many times and challenge them to win and and i guess to a certain extent by the environment that we created with the labat tour you know had a similar philosophy right it was about winning it was about striving it was you know all those things so but he's you know his morning mindful notes and those things that he did you know out of a training session you know he he had some great influencers you know, he had uh, J.P. Polifry, who was a, a motivational speaker that Hernan brought into the mix. Hernan Humana, you know, who first started coaching them, um, brought some discipline and leadership and international maturity as far as the sport goes to them, and which I think added a great amount of value. He wasn't a beach guy, but he was just a solid person and there to support you know, their discipline of going and getting the job done at the Olympics, uh, which they, which they did. But I think foundationally when you're training in a training session or when you're creating an environment where people are going to be part of, whether that's a, a national team or whatever, you have to establish some principles and not be afraid to say, Hey, we're going to win. And it, you know, I think that's the key to it. So every session becomes that. Every session becomes a competition, uh, and you continue to strive yourself, in in my opinion. I think that, you know, I can remember some unique experiences with when I was coaching John and Mark. 
the dynamic between John and Mark when I took over coaching was John was great. If Mark could only be as good as John, then the team would be good. So, <laughs> or the team would, you know, be able to get to the next level. Now, that was an environment that just evolved. You know, the, the pressure was all on Mark because he was getting most of the serves, if not all of them. And, you know, he had to deliver. So he it had come to a place where, you know, he himself was like, oh, and, and child is, you know, like, we, we just have to face the truth here. You're going to get served. So I said to Mark and to John, to a certain extent, I said, I'm not even really going to focus on John, Mark. I'm going to focus on you so that you're ready. And I guarantee you that the tables will turn at some point. That you will get, you'll, and, and that's, that's what your goal is, is to be so great that John's getting every serve or that to push these teams to go away from you at some point. You know, and, and Mark was my focus. And to a certain extent, I became part of Mark's belief system. So if I was in his corner and he knew I was there, that gave him the added belief that he was going to get to that place. And I think you have to you have to establish that. As soon as the a team doesn't believe their coach is that, then they need to fire the coach. Like the coach needs to get out of the kitchen because if the athlete doesn't believe the coach is the be all end all, then you're just wasting time because the coach is a, a fundamental part of the belief system. Like you just can't have a coach. If you don't really believe in your coach, then either you gotta change your mind quick or change coach like period so you know um and and i did that for Heath, uh, and i did that for jamie and christina and unadmittedly i probably did that for garrett and reed and, and a lot of those guys in crush uh not to say that i was necessarily a better coach than the next guy but if all the athletes believe that and then everybody else believes that, then that's going to help you get some points. So I think that, you know, Heath's training techniques or what you do in practice, I think just all have to fundamentally point back to the same is striving to establish the belief. Now, have you ever had athletes push back on this? Like, obviously, like, you're not going to say it and say that you're a better coach than other people, but I'm just going to flat out say it. like your, your track record, your resume, like your style has produced results, right? So have there ever been examples where you're, you're pushing this and you're trying to build the athlete and they're either because of their confidence or their perception that it just wasn't sinking in and it wasn't going to get done? Like, how do you handle those situations? Or once you, you know, build this trust and express this confidence in them and they know that you have their back, does, does it really take off from that point once you can build that, out, like even out off the court, I should say? Well, you know what, to, to suggest that, um, has it ever not worked? Yeah, I've, I've come across lots of athletes that I guess at, at certain points didn't believe, you know, thought I was full of baloney and, and you know, didn't agree or, or whatever. And, and in the moment, that's okay. 
but I think if if fundamentally it's not working for you as an athlete, you're better to get out. You know, like if you don't buy in, you get out. So, um, yeah, I've experienced where it hasn't completely uh, uh, worked. You know, like I've I've had failings as a coach in the sense that, but that's to be expected. You know, you, you have to you have to have that. So, you know, to answer your question, yes. You know, like I think if I can really be dissect this for a minute, like child and he's child probably related more to Hernan and and felt he got more out of Hernan than me. Like he would he might have even and I don't know if you've ever you, you talked to him and not that it's important, but you know, a child would have said that I was more Mark's coach than I was his coach. And and truthfully, to a certain extent, I was during our time together. But I that, that would be one of my failings. That's why we didn't win a gold medal in Athens, I believe, to this day. And I've never shared that with anybody else. But I believe my shortcomings with John Child was where, as a coach, I didn't get the job done. And, you know, I, I, we don't have time to dissect where those, you know, what I would consider, you know, mistakes were made in the, in the, in the realm of, you know, um, being competitive. But I, I, I didn't probably... I needed to spend as much attention on John as I did with Mark and building that trust and establishing it. So, yeah, I, you know, there's no reason why a child and he couldn't have won in Athens, even though they ended up fifth and were just short of the, the, the semi. But when I look at the thing overall, I would say that would be the primary reason why I didn't get there or why they didn't get there. And I therefore didn't get there as a coach. Like they brought me along. Like I, I got, well, you know, so yeah, there's been times where when you say it doesn't work, I think the, here's where the confidence thing is. I know my methodologies work. And I also know that there's many times when I, I can be better at it. If that makes sense to you, like I'll use MC and Amanda as an example. I don't know. Do you, do you know who I'm talking about? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I spent some time coaching them and, and you know what they, they, some people might've say, Hey, they came a long way or, or not. Like we, we kind of reached our goal. Like they, you know, they went to an international games. They represented the country. That was their goal. You know, and when they first approached me, I said, well, why is that your goal? Why are you shooting at that? It's like, you can go to the Olympics. Like, what? what? So, and they, they look at me like I, I got three heads, right? But, you know, I wasn't able to build enough trust because maybe I didn't spend enough time or, you know, it required more work. I didn't, I didn't win with them. And then, 
you know, in the end, it, I, you know, I, I well, there, there's another thing. I won't call it a complete failure, but I know I could have done better to help them, you know, reach their next level. So I think as a coach, you know, you have to make sure you have undying belief in your athletes. You know, just like the athlete has to believe in the coach, you you can't doubt your athletes ever. You have to believe in your athletes and, and you have to, you know, you can't, you can't let that get erode your, your execution. Like if you don't believe in your athletes, not, not to say that that was a problem. That was definitely not a problem with child knees. And it definitely, you know, wasn't a problem with MC and Amanda, but that's, it, it's, it works both ways. You know, you have to, you, you can't, you can't let your belief in your abilities or your athlete's abilities ever come into question. And that's often what coaches don't do. They defer to, oh, well, that athlete's not tall enough, or that athlete's not working hard enough, or that athlete doesn't have good enough arm swing, or can't read, you know, blocking, or whatever. Whatever the, the issue is, that's what coaches tend to do. Now, you have to analyze your athlete, and then you have to work on certain areas. But whenever you question your athlete's capability of doing anything, then you're then you're you're you get yourself on a slippery slope. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and just to pull on one of your earlier points, one thing we we've talked about a lot on the show is just the concept of goal setting. And there seems to be a couple schools of thought where there's people who have their process and they they believe if they stick to their process, the outcome takes care of itself. But in, in hearing some athletes who have had the chance to work with you, or even some stuff you've said today about you know expectations, and, and I believe when Garrett won Worlds, he he mentioned to me that that kind of confirmed what he was already feeling, right? So it wasn't a surprise; it wasn't new to him. He expected it. So where would you say what? school of thought do you believe in with goal setting like it sounds like you want to set the expectations high like you want to go to the olympics so you want to win an olympic gold medal and you're not afraid to say it out loud right like how have you found that athletes either shy away from it or they're not comfortable with that style of goal setting well you know what it's it's i i don't want to judge anybody else's style or or methods or whatever but i think if you know if you discover first why you're doing something and you know, like if, if we're using beach volleyball as an example, if I'm going to play beach volleyball and I want to reach the highest level in beach volleyball, well, the, the answer to that question is quite simple. That's when the Olympic gold, like that's the highest, you can't get any higher than that. Right. So are you afraid to say it? Or, you know, like say it, okay, so that's where I'm going. Like if you don't know where you're going, then how do you start? But if you know where you're going, then the process, that's how you map out your process. And like I said, it's important to know why. You know, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I, I want to play beach volleyball because I want to be the best I can be at it. Oh, is that the reason? Okay, then if you want to be the best that you can be at something, that's what the best is. And yes, you can be that. But if you say, 
I just want to play volleyball because it's exercise and it's fun. And that's why I'm playing it. Well, that's a different set of circumstances. But, you know, so I, I'm, I would be, not to cut this one short, but I would be a big favor of setting specific goals and going after them and admitting to them and committing to them. Now, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of, not a lot, but I've seen some people that have said that, like, like the opposite, whereas they go, and they're not even close, and then they start telling stories about this is where I am and this is where I am. Well, I think you have to be a realist, and then you have to start establishing and understanding the why. Like if you, you know, and then it's, it's, it's quite simple after that. Just commit to it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept. Like, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance, but uh, we were talking about Dennis Rodman the other day with uh, some of the beach national team guys, and it was just funny to hear that because he was getting results done, he was still being professional, even though he was going out and doing Dennis Rodman things, right? Like, he, you could argue he was still connected to his goal, even though the off-court stuff was maybe a distraction to some, right? So how have you found a way to keep athletes connected with their goal, even though they might be doing something that you might not necessarily agree with, right? Like, does it all come down to performance and training and being connected to that moment and then they can be a partier or they can be in bed by 8 30 it doesn't matter what they do outside those moments well yeah phil jackson and michael jordan were uh, an amazing one-two punch right and to a certain extent the other guys in that team and and somewhat rightfully conveyed in that series were were pieces of the puzzle. I think the next important piece was um, Pippen, right? So Jordan, Pippen, and Jackson. Jackson, the coach, and Jordan, the star, and Pippen, you know, a guy that can deliver a lot of things, but still has to be managed, right? Like he's he's probably the next component, and it was the Jordan and Jackson show. Rodman was a character, and they just used him as they saw fit. He was a piece of the puzzle that they used. And and as it turned out, there's a great story around it. And Phil Jackson was a genius the way he handled it. Jordan was saying, this is the way to do it. Yeah, let him go to Vegas. You know, Let him do whatever he wants to do. You know, I don't think foundationally that's how you would deal with people striving for excellence you know but when you're orchestrating you you as a coach or as key influencers on teams you're 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 orchestrating you know that was jordan and jackson's story i don't i don't think rodman's number one priority was you know to win, I don't believe it was. When he was on the court, yes, but did he do everything he could to make himself the absolute greatest? I can't really say, but at first impression, I would say I don't think his lifestyle or that some of the decisions he made were necessarily that great. So I'm definitely not a believer in just a free for all. I think there has to be 
you know, establish some disciplines and some lifestyle, uh, some appropriate lifestyle behaviors and so on and so forth. But I think you build a culture, you build a, a chemistry and, you know, you make decisions as you, as you see fit along the way to reach your goal. And, you know, the outcome, if our only information is watching that series, you know, you have to say that that was a win, right? Uh, the way they let that play out. But, you know, that was edited. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it was anybody's style to say, hey, yeah, let's crank up Dennis's wild side and let him do those things. I think they just managed their way through, you know, his decision-making. And is there any tips you can give to some of our listeners who are coaches, how you've dealt with challenging situations like as an onlooker I've got to see some of your practices and when you're working with athletes like Jamie or Christina or Taylor Pischke like those are high level athletes who have strong personalities right and, and sometimes practice gets heated and sometimes there's an argument right but it never seemed to go offside to me where you guys could yell at each other but it was still going to be professional and you're still going to be a team afterwards right so as a coach in those moments where you're either trying to manipulate the drill to make it challenging or make it feel like those pressure moments how are you navigating when you and the athlete have a disagreement because i think sometimes people look at that and say oh like that that's not good that's disruptive but it sounds like it can be beneficial and it can create those pressure moments that athletes are going to be in when they're on tournament day right Oh, yeah, for sure. I think you have to, uh, at times, create environments where athletes are going to argue for something, whether it's a line call or, you know, whatever. And they have to manage their emotions through those, you know, intense moments. And, um, you know, uh, I used to say to a lot of the athletes that I coached on the beach is my goal is to put you on the slippery slope. Um, where you're fighting to stay in it and concentrate. Like if you're training in a tough environment and you're under pressure and you're, you get to the slippery slope, meaning the slippery slope is where you're, you know, you're either going to lose it or you're going to manage your way through it and overcome it. And it's, it's often not every practice, but most practices, you want to be training under those conditions because that's the make it or break it, right? That's the, that's the mental thing I would consider. So arguments or disagreements. Now you don't want to, you want to maintain a level of professionalism, especially in a training environment where, you know, everybody's listening. You don't want to be screaming and yelling and, you know, drawing a bunch of attention, unnecessary attention. I think, it has to be managed effectively. Like you have to manage your emotions, but I don't think there's anything wrong with allowing, you know, intensity and emotion to, you know, like to have an argument about it, whatever. And, and know that when you're, when you're prepared to do that, you just have to manage it as it comes. I don't recall a situation where it's it's ever gotten completely out of control. I can remember a time, uh, I don't even think I'll share that story, to be honest, with with child, but uh, I can remember I pushed him one time past his breaking point. Uh, and, you know, you know, I didn't do it often, but um, I think there's... 
there's learning to come out of those moments, right? And uh, I think I think sometimes you have to be prepared to be ready to manage through those moments because those are the great moments, right? Those are the moments. It's sort of like if I can if I can equate it to sort of a scientific thing. We're all familiar with what it's like to get a pump in your muscle when you're doing curls, let's say, and you can feel your, you know, your bicep pumping and, you know, the muscle in a sense is tearing and, and often they say, well, that's, you know, that's the growth point. That's where the growth takes place. Well, in your mental and emotional approach to the game, if you train under those conditions at times, you you experience growth and as a coach i think building trust with the athletes and building trust in yourself and what you're doing that you just have to go with that to, to get to those places because that's the goal and that's the art of coaching i think is to be able to create an environment like that where you get there not necessarily physically but mentally and emotionally you're under the stress you want to compete you're, you're dealing with it and you have to face that challenge it's it's difficult to describe but i think that's a that's a great place to get to because i think you can you, you get that growth do you understand that the the relevance of what i'm talking about yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and I like how you mentioned you go there occasionally. And I'm wondering if that's where the line is when the media overhypes that like a, a Keenan or a Tortorella or even like a Belichick, they seem to have a shelf life with certain players where players don't want to be around that environment after a while and it stops being enjoyable or fun or whatever word you want to put on it. So it sounds like you're you're very aware of if and when you play this card, that it's not five days a week, six days a week of these this environment of training, right? Yeah, and, and you know what? When you're in a, if you're not winning, then, you know, an athlete can always turn on you and go, this isn't working, right? You know, and I, you never really know what those people are really like. Those coaches, like you don't, you don't, like nobody really knows what I'm really like. Like Mark would know, Christina and Jamie would know, you know, child would know, like, but, you know, there's certain people that don't really know because they, you know, the, the relationship doesn't get cultivated enough. Like, you really don't go deep enough. Like, I, I'll use MC and Amanda as an example. I don't think we ever really got to the true place where the next level of growth was going to take place. And it ended because, well, it ended. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I think the real growth takes place when you when you get into the into those depths. I believe, and and obviously, you know, some of the people that you you know that we talk about that I've coached, uh, Mark's one of my best friends in, in my life, and Garrett is you know my son, and and Reed is my son. These people that I've coached, like. Like, you can't get any closer. Christina is now my wife. Jamie is a great friend. Like, like you when you, you when you get into this environment and you go to those, those depths of stuff, 
it, it's an intensity and, and there's got to be trust and there's got to be, there's got to be love to a certain extent too, like respect and love. And it's a, to really get results, you can't, it can't be a superficial coach athlete relationship in my opinion. So to build on one of your earlier points about that ladder and you're building and you're always climbing to the next step, well, me and the listeners have learned you were a high-level player, you were a promoter, you worked for the FIVB, you've coached at the highest level. Like, is your ladder full or what is the next step for you if, if you were to stay in volleyball, which I, ho- I hope you do, uh, but what is next for you in our sport? Well, there's definitely something else. Um, without question, there's something else because I'm not finished for sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel because, you know, I've done lots of things in the sport and I have like the sport has given so much to me. Uh, it's given me my family. It's given me, you know, my friends, it's given me my sense of accomplishment. Like it's taken me around the world. Like the sport has truly given me so much and I, and I have so much respect for it. And it's also given me the other side to that coin is so much frustration. You know, I managed a business through insolvency uh, because of my investment in the sport. I've invested literally millions of my own money into the sport. I've invested so much time into it and, and so much into the relationships that, um, which many are distant now. Like there's, there's so many relationships in this sport that I've cultivated that I can't even remember. Like I've met so many people and connected with so many great people. So I've been thinking, and this stemmed out of the Edmonton event, I really want to be of service to the sport. And, and I want to take those pillars and I want to, you know, take them to the next level. So service Serving is an important thing in life, and I and I want to relate that to I want to be of service to the volleyball community on the next level of service. Like the sport, you know, it's funny it gives so much to people, right? Like events and activities, and you know, the organizations create national teams and they do all this thing, but there's nothing's been really established to serve the volleyball community to service them in the greater world like if you looked at uh what volleyball has given to the world it'd be well i'm not sure like what has it given to the world like what and and i want to be of service to the community in a way that it cultivates potentially a global connectivity of this and you know i dabbled with this name volleyball entourage and i think i'm going to do something with it like an entourage is like the definition of an entourage is basically a group of people that follow something special or a special person so the volleyball entourage we all follow this sport around in in for many different reasons but we we're kind of chasing and so we are the volleyball entourage whether we like it or not, that's what we are. 
So I want to establish this community, the volleyball entourage, and I want to be of service to it. I want to create things for it, not just events, because events are simple to do, but other things that have broader, profound impact. I want to help the community give in a greater um, in a, a greater contribution to the world other than just the sport. I want to have a higher purpose that helps the community you know, deliver. So that that's one thing that I, you know, I want to do. I want to, I want to build out and, and, and expand the community and, and be of service. And, um, you know, I, I haven't really formulated what that's going to look like yet, but it definitely is a priority of mine is to serve the community and those people of it and cultivate the connectivity of all those amazing people that are volleyball people, you know, around the world in Canada and, and bring, bring some conic connection to it and, and, you know, establish something material that can be recognized. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's, I could, next. that's next. That, that's a big what's next. That's good to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So looking at the clock here, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we let you go, I, I got to hear this Chicago story that you've hinted at. Uh, could you, could you tell us that oh, one before we let yeah. you go? Real quick. One of my all time most embarrassing moments, but also one of the, the, you know, kind of a highlight of a never forget event. So here we are in Chicago, this first Chicago Open on the AVP Tour, 1982, me and Ed. First round, we win our first round. And the way, as far as double elimination teams, we were ranked way low because we were this team from Canada, we got to be the worst. So what happens after our first round? Our second round, we have to play Hovland Dodd. Nay Drakeage versus Hovland Dodd. So it's the first time Hovland Dodd are playing in Chicago. So there must have been 3,000 people, no bleachers, just gathering around this court to see Hovland Dodd. So here we are, we're using the suede spike, it was called, the, the ball. And uh, long story short, I go up to the net at some point during this, uh, this match with, for a joust with Dodd, and my knee comes up, and I completely square him and he <laughs> drops like a sack of potatoes boom down like he's dead seriously like boom and Hovland I don't know if you guys know Hovland but he's a maniac he's a six foot six wiry guy he's screaming at me like what have you done like and here it is these guys from California thinking they're the baddest asses that have ever been and they're playing these two kids from Canada who don't know what they're doing and certainly enough I take out his guy and what he was really worried about to take out his chances of winning any money but Dodd's lying there and the crowd just gasps like everybody and it gets to the point where you know he kind of musters up and he gets up and he's okay but it was terrible I felt so bad but Hovland was being such a dick and screaming at me so bad it got to the point where I had to yell back hey shut up you know and, it, and, and then it was like enough is enough like here we go but <laughs> I gotta tell you after that like I was I was 
you know, frazzled to begin with playing these guys. And Dodd goes back a couple of points later and does this sky ball of this suede spike thing. It went so high. Like it went, like it, it, it looked like it disappeared. And Ed's trying to track this thing. <laughs> Ed, Ed ends up trying to pass it six feet out of bounds. Like we're so, we're so frazzled and, you know, it was such a ridiculous thing. But I'll never forget that. And over the years, every time I see Dodd now, uh, because he's no longer a young man, nor am I. And I know, I remember one time, I think I was in Norway, I related that story to him. Now, he says he didn't remember, but I think he remembers fully that I, I got the better of him in that game with a, with a knee right up to, in front of 3,000 people at the Chicago Open, 1982. Remember it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that one and all the other details you did today. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I'm sure there's still lots to cover, but uh, I feel like we learned a lot and, and got to know your influence on the sport and all you've done. So so thank you, and I'm excited to hear that you're not done yet and there are some next steps coming. So thanks for today and everything you've done, and can't wait to see what's next. I appreciate you having me, Josh, and uh, look forward to uh, – when we can all gather again.